Hey, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 3. Turn to Hebrews 3. As the music was playing, I was looking in the balcony just to see who was up there because you guys, I can't see you once those lights go on. So if you haven't figured it out, if you don't want me staring at you during the service, you can hide in the balcony. I can't see those people. Um, If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers are coming up and down the rows. We're going to be in Hebrews 3 this morning. That's uh, near the end of your New Testament. While you're turning there, hey, I just have a question for you this morning. As a church, we spend roughly a third to 40% of the time, somewhere like that, looking back, studying books from the Old Testament. We've gone through Ecclesiastes, we've gone through Jonah, we've gone through Joshua, we've spent time in Psalms, a bunch of time spent in the Old Testament. Why? What, why would we as Christians study the Old Testament? Anybody got an answer? Hold on, say that again. Okay, so she says it substantiates the New Testament. How does it do that? I'm going to press you a little bit. Oh, so you listen to my wife, so you're going to throw that at me. Okay, go, go ahead. Give, give, so this answer must be good then. Is that what I got to... Okay, so one of the things that it does is it, it, it lays a foundation that the New Testament builds on. I don't mean to answer for you, but I'm just trying to understand. Okay, give me another reason why we study the Old Testament. So we can learn from the past. Okay, so I think it was Winston Churchill who said that those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. So those are some good reasons, right? Okay, um, Here's a reason, a a scriptural reason from the New Testament. Not only do we look at the Old Testament because it's history and because it sets a foundation for what will happen in the New Testament, but the reality is the Old Testament is, is a picture that is painted for us that we're to go back and look at Um, the reason given in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 is this, so we don't make the same mistakes that the people in the Old Testament did. Actually, Israel is a case study in what it looks like to be God's chosen people and to continue to rebel and to continue to resist God as our leader. So that's one of the reasons that we look at that. And I tell you all of that as we go into Hebrews 3. We're in the New Testament this morning, but what you're going to see in Hebrews 3 is the author of Hebrews is going to refer back to the Old Testament. He's actually going to quote two times in chapter 3 and once in chapter 4, the very same verse from Psalm 95. So he's going back, looking back to what David wrote more than a thousand years before, and he gives this warning three times. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. That was written a thousand years prior to when the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to the believers that he's writing to. And it's interesting, when David wrote that warning, don't harden your heart, he was referring back a thousand years before him to events that happened at the time that Moses was leading the people in the wilderness. So we're gonna be in the New Testament this morning studying some Old Testament encourage, or, uh, encouragements not to harden our heart. And, and we're gonna be looking at this idea of what does it look like for us today not 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, to to have a healthy heart spiritually. Before I get there, just to set the stage, I did some work this week. I looked at some science books, and when I say that, I mean Google. Um, And I I found some interesting facts on our our hearts. These things might surprise you. Do you know that your heart beats 115,000 times a day? 
115,000 times a day. Every day, your heart pumps roughly 2,000 gallons of blood are pumped through your heart. Now, that doesn't really help me because I can't picture 2,000, but maybe as a, as a help, a, a typical um, uh, tanker that you'd see on the highway or the expressway, one of those big semi-tankers, they hold about ten to 12,000 gallons of whatever they're transporting. So your heart pumps enough blood to fill a, a tanker every five to six days. I think that's pretty remarkable. If you were to stretch out your um, blood vessel system, all of your veins and your arteries, they vary in width from about... Um, a tenth of the width of a human hair all the way to about an inch with some of the aortas and stuff coming off your heart. But if you were to stretch them all out to see how long they would stretch, it's estimated that you have about 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. That would be enough to stretch around our earth two and a half times, though I hope nobody's ever tried to prove that. That would be gross, okay? <laughs> but, but it's a pretty remarkable thing. It might also surprise you that in our country, some of you may know this, but heart disease is the number one killer. It'll take roughly 600 to 625,000 people this year will die in the United States of heart disease. That's uh, basically one in every four deaths in our country. Let me throw up a chart. This will give you a little bit of how, it, it's interesting, heart disease is, is regional to some extent in our country. There are certain areas where the amount of heart disease per 100,000 is, is much less than in other areas of our country. And it seems that most people with heart disease come from Arkansas. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> and, and so I was looking at this chart saying, well, that, that's kind of weird because what you have is the southeastern part of the country is, is where people struggle more with heart disease. A any reason why you think that might be? What's that? Diet? Okay. I, th I think it's actually uh, something you consume, but I wasn't thinking diet. Where's tobacco grown in our country? I think it kind of follows a little bit of kind of the areas that produce tobacco because it turns out that smoking is one of the bigger causes of heart disease. So then you've got up in the north like Minnesota, it's like nobody dies up there because they all die of frostbite. And um, <laughs> you've got other areas like it's weird Nevada. And, and I think that's stress and anxiety due to gambling, though I might be wrong. So I was looking at this coming up with different theories, but, but where you live can be one of the contributors to whether or not you'll struggle from heart disease. This might surprise you, I didn't know this. Most heart attacks occur on Mondays. So, so think about that tomorrow, if you would. And uh, <laughs> most heart attacks happen on Mondays. And if you were to look at a calendar year, all 365 days, do you know what day most heart attacks occur? Christmas. Christmas day, you are most susceptible to heart attacks. I found that interesting as well. There's a lot of contributors to heart disease. It can be obviously where you live, it's your age. As you get older, it's a bigger problem. Family history, genetics, smoking I mentioned, um, poor diets, drive-throughs, Taco Bell specifically, I believe, though I can't prove that. <laughs> um, high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol are all contributors. And you can do certain things to keep your heart healthy. You can uh, exercise regularly. You can stop smoking. You can do what you can to manage the stress and anxiety in your life. You can prevent or, or fight against heart disease through diet. And, and here's a question that I would ask. How many of you have thought more about your heart in the last two minutes 
than you have in the last two weeks. Just raise your hand. Yeah, for sure, right? Because we start talking about heart disease. It's not something that we would normally consider as we look at the risks and the things that you can do to prevent it. So, so here would be my next question. What has a greater impact, physical heart disease or spiritual heart disease? How, how, how often are we thinking about the condition of our spiritual heart? What, what are some of the indicators that we're suffering from spiritual heart disease? Are these things that even cross our minds? Do we understand the risks? Do we know how to prevent spiritual heart disease? Well, today's passage is gonna dive right into that topic. The big idea this morning is this, I need to pay attention to the health of my heart. I need to pay attention to the health of my heart. This is true not only of our physical hearts, but also our spiritual hearts. Here's the first point. If you're keeping notes, I'm gonna dive right in. Considering Jesus strengthens my heart. Considering Jesus strengthens my heart. Now that might strike you as unusual, but let me develop it as we start in chapter three, looking at verse one. I'm gonna break this down kind of phrase by phrase, word by word, hang with me. The first word is therefore. It connects us to what we taught last week, that Jesus is our champion. Why is Jesus our champion? Because he defeated death, not only the ruler of death and the penalty of death, but also the fear of death. And we spent time on that last week, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He was willing to become family and treat us as one of his own. He was tempted and suffered in every way that we have. So because Jesus is our champion, it says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Okay, we're going to be talking about heart disease the rest of the moment, but there's a warning here. It says, therefore, who is he writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. This warning isn't just to the population in general. This warning is specifically directed at followers of Jesus Christ. It says, therefore, holy brothers, and it goes on and says this, these next two words, consider Jesus. Now, this consider Jesus is actually a repeat of a theme that goes throughout the book of Hebrews. We've said that the kind of key verse in all of Hebrews is Hebrews 12 too, this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. When it uses the word consider Jesus here, that word is also used by Jesus in Luke 12, 24. He's, he's talking about considering the ravens or the birds. And if God is willing to take care of the birds, if he cares for the birds of the sky, then how much more does he care for us? It means to fix one's attention in a way that the significance of the thing that you're focused on is learned. It's interesting, this consider Jesus as a preventative for heart disease. I just need to remind you that there is something in our heart that gravitates towards making our relationship with Jesus Christ about a list of things that we do and don't do. We turn relationship into religion. It is the natural tendency of our hearts. But what the author of Hebrews is talking about is saying, let the main thing, let your motivation for all that you do be generated by who you're following, who you're gazing at, who you're considering, who your eyes are fixed on. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That word apostle in reference to Jesus Christ, it's really simple, don't get confused because sometimes the disciples are called apostles. Apostles just mean sent one. It says that Jesus is sent from God. Jesus was not only God, but he was sent from God. High priest of our confession, uh, Jesus becomes our high priest. I'm not gonna dive into that this morning. You got all chapter five 
We'll deal with that in a few weeks. But he says, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, or this one that was sent by God was faithful to what he was called to do. Jesus prays in the garden on the night he's betrayed. It says in John 17, three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is sent from God. He is God, sent from God, and he did what God commanded him to do. And our passage goes on at the end of verse two and says this, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse three, for Jesus has been counted more, or counted worthy of more glory than Moses, has much more glory, has the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. And then verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So, The author here goes into this argument that's difficult for us to understand and comprehend, not growing up in the Jewish culture of the first century, because in that culture, Moses was the man. That was their national hero. He was considered the greatest man who ever lived. And to suggest that anyone, including Jesus, was greater than Moses, man, those were fighting words. So I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I graduated from high school back in the early 80s, right when this basketball player by the name of Michael Jordan was entering the NBA. And I lived in Chicago and followed his his whole career. And I would argue all day that he's the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Now, now there are some here who are like, no, I'm not sure. Um, There's this other guy by the name of LeBron, um, who, LeBron something, what was I lost? Yeah, LeBron James. Who, who wears the same number, copycat, um, that, that he's actually bigger and stronger than Michael Jordan was. For, for, for a guy from Chicago, man, those are, those are fighting words, okay? Like, like we can count who won more championships and all of this, and, and those are fighting words. In the case of the Israelites to the Jewish people in the first century, we're not talking about whether Moses was the best basketball player. The idea was, is he the best man who ever lived? And what gets introduced here is Jesus is superior to Moses, and then it gives us some reasons why. It says in verse five, now Moses was faithful in all God's house, catch this, as a servant to testify the things that were spoken later. So I asked why we studied the Old Testament. It lays a foundation for the New Testament. And what the verse is saying here is Moses in this house, he was a servant. He was the guy who cleans the house, prepares the house, gets the house ready for when the owner of the house shows up. He prepares it. It's interesting. Jesus himself said in John 5, 46, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Luke tells us that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he was on the road to Emmaus and he conversed with two disciples. And look what it says. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scripture concerning Jesus. So, In the Old Testament, the end of Deuteronomy, we can read this very, very clearly. I won't take the time to turn there now, but it says Moses was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. And the Hebrews author is saying, you think Moses was great? Consider Jesus. He's just not a servant in the house. Look what it says next. But Christ is faithful 
faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was in charge of the house as a servant. Jesus is the son. Not only is he the owner of the house, he is the creator of the house. And Moses was a servant of the house. When we read about Moses in the Old Testament, you need to understand that he is the the figurehead uh, that refers often to the law. And what the author is arguing is not only in the words that Moses said, but through the priestly system that was set up, through the sacrificial system, through the law that was given to Moses, through the Old Testament holidays that were established, all of this served a purpose, and that purpose was to point our direction to Jesus Christ, to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Next phrase is pretty amazing. It says, and we are his house. So speaking in the first century, if you would have asked, where's God's house? They would have said it's the temple in Jerusalem. That would have been the normal response. If we talk about where is God's house, we often think of the church that we might attend or the physical building. But the argument here is uh, that's not where God lives. In the Old Testament, God will respond after the building of the temple. Can you really build a house for God? I am Habit the heavens. And, and he's saying that we are his house. That, that, that's important to understand. So we moved up as a, as a family um, to Grand Haven in about 1992. And we lived in the same house in Grand Haven till about three or four years ago. So we raised our family in our house in Grand Haven for over 20 years. And over the last three or so years, Chris and I have moved several times into different, a temporary location, and now where we uh, reside um, in Grand Haven. So, so here's the interesting thing. People will ask me, they go, do you miss your old house? No, I don't miss the old house. Here's why. Because my kids don't live there anymore. See, that's a house. It's not my home. My, my home is with my family. It's the people that know me best. It's the people that I'm comfortable with. And it doesn't matter where I am. If I'm with my family, to me, that's home. Does that make sense? So so understand, when the author says, we are God's house, that's a pretty significant statement. What it's saying is, God wants to be with us. He wants to reside with us. And and what will follow this as a warning is, understanding that that's God's desire, don't harden your heart towards God. said last week that in studying Jesus Christ as our champion, he is not ashamed to call God them brothers speaking of us. So we are his house, but don't miss the next phrase. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is a repeated theme throughout the book of Hebrews that we are God's house, but there is a warning. Make sure you're one of God's people. And the way that you do that is the test is fruitfulness and enduring faithfulness. This isn't unique just to the book of Hebrews. If if you're looking at your own heart, if you're examining your own heart and you want to be sure, you want to have an assurance that you're one of God's children, the biblical proof of that is enduring faithfulness and fruit. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 22, the book of Revelation all repeat the same phrase, but to the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. In 
Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Revelation, there are seven letters written to, or there are seven letters written to churches in chapters two and three. And in each of those letters, it warns the true believer in all of those churches, be an overcomer, be an overcomer. The one who endures, be an overcomer. The idea being that the true follower of Jesus Christ is proven by the endurance of his faith and fruitfulness. And the author of Hebrews is fearful that the audience that he's writing to, because of the difficulties and persecutions in their life, they're not going to endure. They're going to, as we read in chapter two, they're going to drift away. And so that is what he is trying to prevent here. And the first argument that he makes is when we consider Christ, when we set our focus and our attention and and we look at who our Savior is, that's going to strengthen our hearts. By the way, just as a a side note, I'm not just talking spiritual hearts, I'm actually talking physical hearts as well. I believe that considering Jesus will strengthen your physical heart. Last week, if you were here, I talked about, uh, kept quoting this guy by the name of Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud had analyzed humanity. He understood the way that we thought, the way that we operated. That's what he devoted his life to. And he said the main work of his entire life was to identify that the greatest hindrance to civilization is this sense of guilt that we all carry. We're all guilty. We all fall short of our expectations, others' expectations, who we think that we should be. And he says the major thing that is keeping society from advancing and developing is this sense of guilt and shame that we all carry. And the problem with guilt and shame is it leads to depression, it leads to anxiety, it leads to despair. And he was dealing with all of these effects, blaming it all on guilt, but the problem was Freud didn't know where to offload the guilt. The best he could do was say, I actually think guilt is a mental illness properly identified our issue, failed to provide a solution. And I actually believe that I can take you nowhere else to deal with your guilt and shame than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the fact is, our guilt is not some abstract concept that takes place in our brain. It's a reality. The Bible clearly says that we're guilty because of sin. And the remedy to sin is that Jesus Christ died in our place and took God's wrath on our behalf. So I believe that considering Jesus is good not only for our spiritual hearts, but our physical hearts as well. Here's a second thing. My heart, not, now I'm not getting healthy. I'm not, considering Jesus strengthens my heart. The opposite is true. My heart stiffens when I forget God's faithfulness. Back in the late 1990s, my, my father-in-law's health began to deteriorate. And he went to the doctor and he was diagnosed with a disease called cardiac sarcoidosis. Cardiac sarcoidosis. It is actually a a stiffening of the heart. If you study cardiac sarcoidosis, it can affect different types of people, all different types of people, but it predominantly attacks African-American women and Dutch men. Go figure. It's a genetic thing. And so what he found was his heart was not efficiently pumping blood anymore as the heart grew actually harder and harder and stiffened. The the muscle was actually mummifying. Now, in some cases, through steroids or other treatment, um, this can be, um, I don't know if you could be remedied, but it can at least be survivable. In his case, it was actually fatal. He died in 1999 at the age of 60, of a physically 
hardened heart. So as we read this warning, my heart stiffens when I forget God's faithfulness. Look what it says in verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray, hear this, in their heart. They have not known my ways. Verse 11, as I swear, or as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, let me set the context of what he's referring to in the Old Testament. You need to understand that Israel, from the moment that they were created as a nation under Abraham, Abraham was told to leave his home to be nomadic until God would eventually lead him and his descendants to a land that he promised to give them as an inheritance. So throughout the ages, Israel had been a nomadic people and and their journeys had eventually led them to Egypt where they were enslaved for 400 years. And through God's provision of a leader, Moses, Israel was freed from their slavery. They left Egypt, they traveled to Mount Sinai, they received the law, and they went to the edge of this land that God had promised all the way back to Abraham. This was the crowning moment, and the land in, if you're a nomadic people, it actually represented to you rest. I'm home. I, I can be at ease. So they came to the end or the edge of this rest that was promised to them by God, and they sent 12 spies in to spy out this land that God had promised to give them for an inheritance. If you know the story, two of the spies came back and they're like, it is an incredible land. It is flowing with milk and honey. They brought back um, samples of the fruits of the land and they said, we need to go take this. God will give us this land. But, but 10 of the spies, they went in and they're like, man, there's giants in there. And the text is really clear. The report of the 10 spies turned the hearts of the people And in doing so, you need to remember it was just in the past few years that the people who now rebelled against God and and didn't trust that God would be true to his promises, just in the past few years, think of what they had seen. They had seen Moses lead them out of slavery, empowered by an incredible display of God's power through the plagues. They had fled Egypt, got to the edge of the Red Sea, God had parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry land. And then he closed the sea around the superpower of the day, Egypt, and crushed its army. All of this was before they got to the edge of the land. And when they got to the edge of the land, they said, nope, I don't think God's got this one. What a crazy decision. God's looking down and saying, like, really? Like, really? I defeated the world's superpower? And you think some guys like 6'6 are going to be the problem? I led you across the, the Red Sea. You're, you're worried about crossing this river? You know what? Back into the wilderness you go. And for 40 years, the people will wander around the wilderness. And here's the incredible thing about the story. While they're wandering around in the wilderness because of their disobedience, what's on display is God's faithfulness to the nation in spite of the fact that they've been rebellious. He, He leads them by fire, by a pillar of fire by night and by the cloud during the day. When they get hungry, he provides them manna, bread that is there every morning. 
We can read accounts in the Old Testament that birds would fly low to the ground and they just fall all over the place. So they had food to eat. Like God is giving them provision throughout the wilderness in spite of their rebellion. But here's the reality. The people grumble and complain because their hearts are hard. And they can't even recognize and be thankful for God's provision because the decision that they made has led to a hardened heart. They have forgotten God's faithfulness. It's interesting. There's two key words if you want to know what it looks like when your heart is stiffening. They're in verse 8. These words are rebellion and testing. Why, why was God provoked? Well, verse 10, because they always go astray in their heart. And why do they go astray? Because they have not known, they have not remembered God's ways. We, we, we see this all the time in the context of our church. We'll see a, a couple maybe come to Christ or there's a renewal in, in their commitment to Jesus Christ and it begins to positively impact their, their marriage. And um, we see God do remarkable things in restoring a relationship. It was interesting this last Thursday and Friday, I was on a bus down to Kentucky with our um, seniors ministry and we went down and we saw uh, Noah's Ark, which has been recreated in Northern Kentucky, I guess, in the Creation Museum. So in essence, I spent two days on a bus with a bunch of old people. And um, I don't mean to be offensive, but how old were they? Well, here's what I would tell you. If you were to pass our bus on the expressway, you would have been convinced that we were going to a casino. That's how old we were, okay? <laughs> and, and, and so I, I'm with old people. And if I'm offending some of you in the seniors ministry, here's what I would tell you. Lighten up. We make fun of millennials all the time. It's just your turn, okay? If you're going to laugh at them, you got to be laughed at yourself. So, so we went down to on this trip, and as we were driving on the trip, Chris Moeller, one of our pastors who'd organized the trip, he did such a fantastic job that he had movies for people to watch back and forth on, on the trip, and on the way home, we're watching this, room, this movie called War Room. Maybe some of you had seen it. I had never seen it. And it's a story about a, a marriage that is in disarray and a woman sets up a, a war room, a prayer chamber in her closet and begins to pray for her husband. And you see the relationship remarkably changed. And we're watching the end of the movie and it's getting um, very emotional and I'm trying not to tear up. And my wife is watching me closely because if that were to happen, the whole bus is going to know about it, okay? So <laughs> I'm trying to hold it together. So, so I'm watching the movie and, and, and I don't know, like I, I don't follow... This, I'd never heard of the movie, but, but I don't know if there's a War Room 2. Like, I don't know if that exists. But sadly, when I've seen similar stories in our church, sometimes the sequel isn't pleasant. And, and what happens is God provides this in, incredible restoration. And then what happens is people drift back. They, their heart stiffens. They quit listening. They go back to old patterns. I, I know parents in our church that are consumed by the rebellion of their children. And that's hard. If you're a parent who's gone through seasons where your children are rebellious, I know how hard that is. But, but, but sometimes we forget God's faithfulness during that season, and we forget the fact that once we were rebellious too as children, right? And as young adults. And, and God didn't let go of us, and he pursued us, and he chased us, and now we find ourselves in that same pattern with our children, but we lack the remembrance that if... God was faithful to change our heart. Doesn't he have the power to do the same thing in our kids? See, our heart stiffens when we forget God's faithfulness. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. I want to speak specifically to our church for a moment. This warning repeated twice here and once next week in chapter four, don't harden your hearts, don't harden your hearts, don't harden your hearts. I'm worried how this warning is perceived in our church and in our community in Western Michigan. Most denominations, evangelical denominations would agree that you are saved when you recognize that you are a sinner, that you repent of your sin you seek forgiveness and call on Jesus for your, as your savior. That's how we are saved. Denominations differ on what gets us to the point that we're willing to admit that we're a savior and call upon Jesus' name. And the, and the debate is usually between this idea of predestination, free will, Calvinism, Arminianism. There's a lot of different names, but denominations divide on this. We believe here at this church, what we celebrate, not just myself, but our elders, it's in our doctrinal statement, that we believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and if God hadn't moved on our behalf, none of us would choose to follow after him because our heart's too deceitful and wicked. So we believe in sovereignty. That is basically a Reformed tradition. It is held by many denominations, such as Reformed, Christian Reformed, many Lutheran, many Methodist. There's another side of the debate, which is held by denominations traditionally like the Wesleyan Church or the Assemblies of God, which is saying, no, men are moral free agents. God puts them in the position where they get to choose whether or not they're going to accept salvation. And I don't pretend in any way that I'm going to solve this debate that has raged for centuries in the next five minutes. Okay? I grew up Baptist. Okay? Not Reformed not Wesleyan, Baptist, which means we don't even know what we believe. We just like to fight, okay? So, so in Baptist land where I grew up, this debate, like you've got denominations. Honestly, there's a denomination called free will Baptists. And then you've got reformed Baptists. So this can be very confusing, but we're looking at a warning that's written to believers and I want to make sure that at the extremes of both positions, we don't get ourselves into trouble. Here's my concern at the extreme of the Reformed tradition that many of us share. That, that because we believe that we are chosen by God, we have the, persever- or the perseverance of the saints that we can't lose our salvation we turn our relationship into a process. We're, we're, we're baptized as an infant. We come to a moment where we make a public confession or we're confirmed in our faith. And because God was the one who started the work and he's the one that keeps the work in place, we're pretty comfortable in our salvation. And we never even consider the fact that we might be drifting towards a hardened heart. It never crosses our mind because of our theology, and my fear would be that some would have an assurance of something that they possess that they really don't possess. These warnings that we see in Hebrews give people that are in the sovereignty camp a lot of hard time. They look at them and they go, well, 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 if this is written for believers, what does it mean to have a hard time? They, they, they struggle to process it because it's never crossed their mind that they got to go with their heart. Their theology leads them there. On the free will side of the argument, at the extreme of that, people are never sure if they've done enough. And free will can begin to look a lot like work salvation if we're not careful. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this. And the problem there is you're always worried about your heart. 
Am I drifting? Have I done enough? And you never experience God's rest on that side of the extreme. So at the reform side, I'm worried about people who fully believe that they possess something that they don't have. And on the free will side, I'm worried about people that are constantly worried that they don't possess what they do have. These are the two extremes that we need to guard our hearts against. Most heart attacks happen on Monday. I think that's spiritually true as well. We go to church, we go through what Christians go through on Sunday. We attend church, we recognize the Sabbath, but then we go back into the workforce. We go back to our everyday routine and that is where the crisis of our faith is tested to see if it's real or not. Here's two things. I hope you see this in the text as we keep going. Verse 13, two keys for a healthy heart. Two keys for a healthy heart. The first is regular checkups. That seems to make sense. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's that warning again about enduring faith. And please note, the heart's deceitful, man. It can easily be fooled. So the first way that we present heart disease is with uh, continual checkups. This is true of your physical heart. Physically, you go to a doctor, and the doctor um, maybe takes your blood pressure, or maybe he runs an EKG on you, and, and maybe he puts you on one of those terrible treadmills and, and runs a stress test. But the doctor can examine your heart to see if there's problems that are indicated, if your heart is healthy. Spiritually, what does it mean to get an, a regular checkup? What does it look like to go to the doctor? Well, I find it interesting in the text, in guarding ourselves against a hardened heart, it doesn't say pray more. That would have made sense to me. Like, like praying more, I think that's preventative, but that's not what the author points to. It, it doesn't say... Um, read your Bible more. It, it doesn't say spend more time in the word, though I think that's also preventative. But when it talks about an annual checkup for our spiritual hearts, it talks about every day exhort one another. That, that requires community. That requires interaction. A physical heart to maintain its health, you go to a doctor. A spiritual heart to maintain its health, we need to exhort one another. That word exhort, Jesus actually used it to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside to provide help. It includes encouraging, supporting, cheering someone on. Think of somebody in a race and you are encouraging them, cheering for them. You can do it. What, what, what does it look like to exhort one another? Well, what are we exhorting them to? to? To considering Jesus, to fixing our eyes on Jesus, to keeping God's faithfulness in the forefront of our mind, for that to be our focus. It also includes convicting of sin. John 16, 8 says, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So it's not just encouragement. Sometimes exhorting each other means, man, man I'm worried about you. But like, I'm seeing some things in your life. I'm seeing some patterns return and, and, and I'm worried that you're drifting. I, I'm worried that your heart is hardening. So it's encouraging, support, finish the race, keep pressing. But it's also the willingness to say the hard thing when necessary. And by the way, 
You have to be willing to receive that word as well, right? So the scriptural treatment of a hard heart, which is talked about in this passage, is we need to exhort one another daily, and that requires that we're in relationships that are deep enough that that trust is there, that we can allow that to happen. So, so let's say that I went into an appointment with my doctor, and he ran the EKG, and he did the stress test, and he checked my blood pressure, and he came back into the room, and he's like, hey, is there anything else I need to know? And I'm like, no, like, like what are the test results? And he says, well, everything looks good. Now, now in the process, what I failed to mention is um, I'm under a lot of anxiety and stress right now. I'm noticing that my heart sometimes is fluttering. It feels like it's skipping a beat. Um, I have crushing chest pain. Like, do you think these are things I probably should have told the doctor during the appointment? But if I don't tell the doctor those things during the appointment, if I'm not willing to reveal those things about what's going on with my physical heart, and he says, well, from my perspective, everything looks good, do I really leave the appointment with the false assurance that everything's okay when I didn't reveal everything that needed to be known? Or do I leave the appointment still worried that my heart might have a problem because I wasn't willing to give all the information? If that's true of my physical heart, we've got to believe that that's true of our spiritual heart as well. We've got to let down the mask that everything is okay long enough so that people can exhort us in a way that is actually a preventative medicine for the health of our spiritual hearts. So regular checkups are important. Here's the second one. Do what the doctor says. Look at verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Listen, the Bible is clear. Throughout scripture, obedience cannot save you. You can try and you can try and you can be as obedient as you think that you can possibly be, but the reality is we're all sinners solely saved by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. Our works never save us. But the clear evidence of a hardening heart is rebellion and disobedience. And I'm not talking about trying and falling short. I'm not talking about falling into disobedience and immediately having a soft heart that leads to repentance. I'm talking about that moment where your heart goes, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm just not going to do it. At the root of all rebellion is a lack of trust towards God. And what this passage is teaching is that the encouragement that you need, the encouragement that I need from one another to make sure that our hearts don't grow hard is that we encourage one another to walk in obedience. I want you to see something just in the last few verses, verses 16 through 18. It's interesting what the author does. He asks in each verse a question, and then he answers the question himself by asking another question. Look at what he does in verse 16. It says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who were they? And the answer is, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And the point of this, the truth and tragedy of Israel's history, it is that it is possible to begin well and end really poorly. The warnings to followers of Jesus Christ, the warning is make sure that your heart isn't growing hard. Verse 17, he asks this question, and with whom was he provoked or who was he angry with for 40 years? And he answers, he goes, was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? And the point is, at the moment that they rebelled at the edge of the promised land, they got their eyes off God and his faithfulness and his ability to keep his promises. And in the moment they took their eyes off Jesus, off of God, in that moment, 
They were destined to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. In verse 18, question, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And he answers, was it not those who were disobedient? Listen, that rebellion where we won't do what God says, that we won't trust his promises when we take our eyes off Jesus, when our heart grows hard, that decision, that choice always leads to disobedience. We just from hope and walking with God to getting our eyes off Jesus and then we begin to doubt and then we wander into disobedience. So the writer concludes, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Doing what the doctor says is it's good for our health. It's good for our hearts. Here's how I'd close, just, just really simply. This message is not so high that we can't reach it. It's not so complex that we can't understand it. It's actually quite a simple message. How's your heart doing? Is your spiritual heart right now, is it soft? Is it healthy? Or is it beginning to stiffen? Is it beginning to harden? Are you willing to receive an exhortation? Are there people in your life that are encouraging you to obedience, to faithfulness? Do those relationships exist? Who are you encouraging? Who, who did you used to go to for encouragement and exhortation, but when some hard words needed to be spoken, you no longer go to them? You've replaced their opinion with so many other opinions that say you deserve to be happy, you deserve. Who are you encouraging? I can't see your heart. I don't know the condition of your heart. The, the heart is hard enough for me to figure out on my own. I can fool myself. And the reality is we need other people to see and speak into our lives to encourage one another to make sure that our hearts aren't hardened. That's our job as a church to one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this message. And um, even in these brief moments, I would pray um, in my heart as I prepared and those who heard, um, we would consider maybe a little more carefully the condition of our heart. And Father, I would pray that um, you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we would be quick to repent when we fall short, that we would... Um, not develop attitudes that um, we refuse to change and submit to what you called us to do. Father, we thank you even in this moment that you are a God that chases, that pursues. And the fact that you love us in such a way that you just don't let go. Father, we thank you for your grace and for the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.